Hey everyone, welcome to episode 104 of the MTG Grindcast, the spikiest podcast in all of Central North Carolina, with a special focus on the SCG Tour. Uh, I'm re-recording this intro, unfortunately we had a little bit of an equipment malfunction at the beginning of this episode, so we lost a little bit of recording there, so I just wanted to re-record, Collins will be joining us once we get to the episode itself, he is here, just not here, here. Before we get too started, want to thank our newest patrons, Kenny Joa, thanks a lot, uh, David M, Scott, Matt E, and an edited pledge by Eric L. We really, really appreciate the support from all of you. Uh, it's pretty huge for letting us do this and hopefully, you know, have fewer equipment malfunctions in the future, but hopefully you don't really notice it too hard if I just stop talking about it and get to the episode itself. This episode, we will be going over the results from SEG Philly and looking forward to modern tournaments in Columbus and Mythic Championship Barcelona. So without too much more of just me talking at you, uh, I guess there is quite a bit of that on the show as well, but Collins will be here too. So uh, sit back, relax, and let's get started. For, for our new patrons and for all of our patrons, we really, really do appreciate the support. It really helps us get this stuff together and also get some of our new rewards out. So we've got pins, we got tokens, we got hats, uh, shirts are coming, playmats are coming. Just need to keep working that out with the artist. But we got plenty of stuff in the pipeline, including just our normal glowing personalities and super insightful analysis and that sort of thing still, still coming to you. Yeah. Before we get too into actually what happened at the tournament and stuff, I would like to go over a keeper mall as we usually do. Yep. So this one is just a little bit different from some that we normally have. This is what appears to be a perfectly serviceable hand. Okay. And this is a real hand that I had in the dark, which also probably was a misplay because I was playing against Abe's team, so I probably should have had some idea of what his standard seat or what his modern seat was, okay. but I did not. On the draw, game one, we've got we're playing Phoenix. Sure. We've got two sleight of hands, a manamorphose, an arc light Phoenix, a fetch land, and two spire buff canals. So okay. three lands, two cantrips, a manamorphose, and an arc light phoenix. Okay. So we're on the draw. We have like part of putting Phoenixes into play. We don't have the Faithless Zooting. We have some cantrips to help us find it there, but after playing the match out and after thinking about it a little bit more, I have some different thoughts about when I initially looked at this hand. So I don't know okay. if you have any like initial thoughts about it. Um, I mean, you know, in the in the blind, the hand seems really strong to me. Uh, we can start off with a slight, and that mm -hmm. can find us either a faithless looting or a thing in the ice, both of which would be very strong mm -hmm. with this hand, right? And both of which would facilitate a pretty powerful turn two. So, yeah, I, I like keeping this hand and just firing off a slight, seeing if you can dig towards, um, you know, one of the things that, like, one of the missing pieces. And yeah. it seems like we have, like, multiple pieces that we could have that could, you know, yeah. work for that. And, you know, if we brick and hit just, like, another cantrip, I'm totally down to, on turn two, fire off the Manamorphose and, you know, dig a little deeper. Manamorphose slight again, maybe find a Faithless Looting there. Right. Um, so. Yeah. yeah, I mean, and that is a really common line. Is turn two, even if the Manamorphose isn't guaranteed to be getting you to the number of spells or doing a thing, you dig one deeper on the off chance that you do something really powerful with it. Um, so that is super common. Um, and I do think that this hand probably is a keep. You know, you keep most hands with Phoenix anyways, but like this is most of the way to Phoenixes, one or more Phoenixes on turn two. And 
you, the cantrips help you get there. The way that the game played out is I kept this hand on the draw, and of course it turns out I'm playing against humans. Sure. So um, you got Thaliad? Yeah, so so I get Thaliad, and this hand just... After my opponent revealed they were humans turn one, and I cast Sleight of Hand, you know, I'd take a removal spell door over anything else. I'd Probably. take it over even thing in the ice. Yeah. Um, because if they play a Thalia on turn two, and you your hand is just Manamorphoses and Sleight of Hands, even with a thing in the ice... You're going to have a bad time. You're going to yeah. die. <laughs> um, unfortunately, that's, pr- that's how the game played out, is that I cast Sleight of Hand was only able to grab another cantrip off of it. They played a Thalia, and then I was pretty much just dead in the water at that point. My turn two was a sleight of hand. Right. And and I would just fell too far behind the eight ball. And I don't know exactly what the lesson to take away from that is. I don't know if that turns this hand into a mulligan or something like that. You don't mulligan two removal in the dark. Right. I think that's silly. I don't know if it means that I should have been more aware of what people in the tournament were playing, especially people on teams with people that I know. Maybe it is just part of playing Magic and playing the deck, but boy, like on turn one, I had a feeling of despair in my stomach <laughs> sure. because I was pretty sure I was just going to lose the game from that. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I don't think that you... Like, I think that if we're going to be analyzing what we could have done differently, mm-hmm. then you're probably right in that, you know, maybe knowing what you were against would have been better. But we just don't have that luxury all the time. And in the dark, I I think that you would be have to be pretty crazy to mulligan a hand like this. I think that yeah. it's just strong enough already and sure i mean there are going to be some decks that uh are going to be really well set up against you know kind of any good hand that you could have out of any deck that's just like i think a a reality of magic a lot of the time is that like i'm keeping this hand if they're on like this subset of decks then i might be screwed but Mm -hmm. you just kind of have to take those risks yeah 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 and that's one of the reasons that i've liked phoenix is because a lot of the times the hand is not really dependent on what your opponent is playing because you are a reactive deck but you have a proactive game plan Mm -hmm. or or at least you are a kind of mid-rangey deck but you have that proactive game plan and it's kind of only in the case of thalia that like, whatever my opponent does on turn one or turn two, if I can put, like, two Phoenixes into play, I can keep up. Yeah. But Thalia keeps you from doing that. So. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. So definitely feel bad for, like, like uh-oh, we uh, we <laughs> right. ran up against the deck that this was bad against, but, you know. Yeah. And, and you know, this wasn't just a, to, to make a... This wasn't a thing to, like, make me feel better about having kept that hand. That wasn't the goal here. But one of the other things that I think may be starting to happen, and this hand is kind of representative or at least that game is kind of representative and we'll talk about this more as we talk about modern in the second half of the episode but i am not confident that phoenix is going to be the best choice going forward yeah um i think it's lost a little bit of ground and i think a lot of the changes you have to make to keep up with other decks i think the main problem with those changes things like putting aria flame in the deck and stuff like that they every single one of them makes you a little bit worse against humans and you know you play against humans in basically every modern tournament and it's a little frustrating because the deck as it kind of originated was easily a 60 something percent favorite against humans i was always very happy to play against humans and every single change makes it like a little bit worse and a little bit worse until I'm not sure I want to play against humans most of the yeah. time. And you talked, like, I, I think last week or maybe the week before about how uh, you need, like, a density of cards that draw cards in that deck. Mm-hmm. And when that's the case, there's only so much wiggle room that the deck has yep. to, you know, to make the changes that it's going to need to keep up with the format. Yep. Yeah. 
Yeah, and on top of that, I think that, you know, uh, and we saw this kind of, like, when we had that brief, like, pro tour period of everybody was playing modern Under the London Mulligan. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, we went back for a little bit, and then now we're back to London Mulligan. Yeah. During that time period where people were London Mulliganing, Phoenix just wasn't the best deck anymore. Right. And I think that it might be, you know, we, we were talking about how fundamentally the mulligan rule helped every other deck but just didn't help out phoenix really doesn't help phoenix at all. at all yeah um you keep almost anything with phoenix. Yeah. that was one of the great strengths of the deck right um yeah and now that phoenix doesn't have that kind of edge anymore uh i definitely think that it's gonna have a tougher time keeping up i think we're just you know running back into that same old problem yeah i, so. I think you're right uh which is you know gonna have to make some changes to how i approach modern in the future personally i think <laughs> yeah that's all right. That's Rest one in of the piece. It, it was not. It was probably not the best to just have a default modern deck. That was the only deck that I played in any modern tournament. So probably will have to adapt going forward. So that's fine. Yeah. All right. But so let's talk about standard first. Okay. Because I think we're going to spend the most time talking about modern since Columbus is next week, and you know we've kind of been talking about standard a lot lately, but. We definitely had some developments to the standard format this weekend between the Open and the GP. A lot happened. I guess the main thing that we should just start talking about is Scapeshift. Scapeshift. Right. So Scapeshift was the deck that I think we largely missed going into this weekend. We, I mean, we certainly knew it existed and I knew that it was doing well in uh, Upper Mythic. Mm -hmm. I, you know, I was playing against it quite a bit. But we weren't working on it. But we, we weren't working on it and I did pretty minimal testing with it. I never really did any testing with, like, the most recent, like, really tuned builds of, mm-hmm. of Scapeshift. I think most of my testing with it was, like, earlier on in the week or even, like, weeks prior to that. Was that back um, when it was even, like, two colors or way too many colors or something? Like, did you did you try the Bant version that was heavy on Teferi's or... No, I never did. Gotcha. Yeah. Um, and Teferi, I think, was a huge piece of making that deck really, really strong. Yeah. Being able to instant speed Scapeshift is... It just turns it into a one-shot kill. Yeah. It, it, like, whereas before it wasn't really, you had to, like, pass the turn. But now, like, you know, casting shift on your end step, on mm-hmm. your opponent's end step, makes it feel uh, like twin. <laughs> right. Or against dinosaurs yeah. in the middle of combat. Right. So you just never really know if you can attack anymore. Yeah. Yeah, so Scapeshift was definitely the breakout deck, I think, of the weekend. Uh, LSV won the Grand Prix with it, and it put up a lot of results in all of the tournaments yeah. that it was played in. Yeah. So that's, that's a deck that is going to stick around. Mm-hmm. People are going to continue playing it. I think people, more people are going to try to respect it a little bit. It's a little it's a little tough to hate out, but we do have tools. I mean, Alpine Moon is right. in standard right now. I don't know. Blood Sun also in standard. Interesting, yeah. However, each of these are also pretty easily answered by Teferi. True. Which is just, it's got that built-in, yeah. like, doesn't Teferi lose just to permanent base hate. Yeah. yeah. All right, now make a bunch of zombies. Yeah. So yeah, so I mean, that deck, you know, kind of really proved itself over the weekend. And uh, I think that, like, leaving the weekend, I would probably call Scapeshift just, like, the best choice that you could have, Mm -hmm. for sure. Um, But there were two other decks that also performed really, really well. We've really got, like, three main standard decks that are, like, exciting and powerful, and you should be perfectly comfortable spending some time on these decks. Right, yeah. The, The first of which I want to mention is... Uh, the deck close to my heart, Jun Dinos. Yep, I yeah. think you you definitely got that one right. Like yep. several 
good finishes for that one, yep. including uh, Corey Baumeister played it. Yeah, Corey Baumeister played it and won the team open. Mm-hmm. Robert Stanley, I had been working with him pretty much all week leading up to this on John Dinos, mm-hmm. and he also made top eight of the team open. Uh, Dylan ended up playing it in the standard classic the next day and made top eight. I was unable to cast any Galtas over the weekend, and that makes me really sad. You didn't cast any... Oh, right, because you just Because played I didn't play it. Okay, yeah, I'm, yeah, yeah. I'm sure I would have, <laughs> you know, had I played the deck. Tough, tough but, to cast them in your Nissa deck, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, kind of maybe not. But <laughs> tough to put them in your Nissa deck. I guess it's pretty easy deck. to cast them. Yeah. Maybe. Hmm. <laughs> All right, we're breaking a lot. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, Gen Dinos is just, you know, it... It really did feel a lot like uh, how modern Dredge feels like, where you just mulligan to a really powerful hand mm-hmm. and you just run people over. It, <laughs> I mean, it, it has the, capaci- the capacity to, to, you know, kill people on turn four really consistently, or at least just start making them chump block from, like, turn four onwards. Yeah. And that, uh, right, you know, like you really were saying that against Nexus, part. even against Nexus, where, like, these mid-sized creature decks tend to be that like yeah. it's just so fast that they have to start fogging so early so yeah completely. And, like their their curve has to be pretty perfect for mm-hmm. them to be able to keep up yeah i mean john dinos performed really well over the weekend um the problem with john dinos moving forward is that it's much easier to hate out all people really need to do in order to start beating that matchup is just to play removal spells mm-hmm. and black removal spells are best yeah, the black removal spells, all like the Doomblade effects are, you know, obviously really good, but yep. pretty much anything they can interact with their curve. Like, even Aether Gust can be really annoying because yeah. it hits all of the two drops. And if you can hit a two drop hunter with an Aether Gust, that essentially slows them down enough that you'll be pretty fine to be able to keep up. And if you can ever stabilize or even get ahead against the Dino Sec, it's just over. Right. You know, the Dino Sec is, it's just a, it's kind of a one trick deal of, you know, we're going to try to kill you as fast as possible. Right. If that doesn't work. Once, once their Nissa has activated, like made a couple of lands into creatures, it becomes like really hard to break through. And yeah. Yep. And so then the last deck. The last deck was uh, the deck that Zan worked on last week. Mm -hmm. Uh, This is the Bant, the Bant mid-range deck, essentially. And this is what I ended up playing both in the team event and in the classic, which I also made top eight of, which was nice. It's and it was essentially it's pretty similar to like the old Bant mass manipulation shells, mm-hmm. but we cut a lot of like the clunky top end. So we cut all the mass manipulations, and the big adds to the deck were Voracious Hydra, which was incredible for me all weekend yeah that one kept like ticking up in the lists i think we started yeah. with like one or two and right. then it became a three of yeah. and then it just was a hard four of yeah and it, honestly in, in a lot of matchups it's just the best card mm-hmm. against both dinos and like mono red if you just like make a six seven or an eight nine or a you know ten eleven they just lose it's, it's just it's just over it starts getting really <laughs> yeah. really good at like five mana five right. mana six seven a turn yeah. early is five minutes six seven is my favorite mode for yeah. the card yeah because when you're curving out you can just be like all right six seven like huge threat that they have to deal with yeah and then you know next turn you can like cast hydra crisis for four or whatever and um everything else feels really good with the voracious hydras in the deck i noticed myself like having the option to like kill one of their creatures or just make it bigger <laughs> and, and making it bigger was correct more often than i thought it was mm-hmm. i think i definitely made some fights where i was like that was probably bad. Should have just made a big dude. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't care about this Omnath. I can right. have a 12-13. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so 
Racist Hydra, really, really strong. Uh, big element of that deck. Um, and then the other card that we added in more copies of was Frilled Mystic. Mm -hmm. We found Frilled Mystic was just really good in the format, both in the sense that like it had a lot of good juicy counters, mm -hmm. and also that people weren't respecting it. So it was good both like I think metagame wise and like like play pattern wise. Interesting. Like play patterns often have their own kind of metagame where if somebody's playing against a Bant deck, if they don't really expect it to have a Frilled Mystic, they're just not going to play around it. Yeah. And if you're, you know, you can really punish a Frilled Mystic player if, you know, the board's at parity and you just pass back. And then they're like, oh, all right, you know, maybe they flash in a 3-2, maybe they untap and pass again. But, you know, if they're not gaining any advantage, then you can make things awkward for them. But I found that this is a big thing that I found online is that nobody respected it. Hmm. People were just jamming into it. Like, people would play their Teferis, play, you know, whatever. And you just counter it, and then and then you're so far ahead. Yeah. But, you know, the other deal is that, like, you know, everybody just has a bunch of, like, four and five mana things that they need to cast. And when you have so many tempo-positive plays in your deck, just, like, the ramp, or just fundamentally tempo-positive, like, Teferi's tempo-positive, uh, fighting something with the Racious Hydra, you know, all of these things, like, help you maintain parity or uh, put you ahead just like in that tempo race and when you're ahead or maintaining parity then all of a sudden this card that is like only good when you are in that situation uh just you know it just synergizes really well mm -hmm. right because it is a very powerful card it's yeah. just once you're behind any four mana counter spell becomes right. very questionable yeah yeah and then you know just being able to ramp into it and like represent it on turn three as opposed to mm -hmm. turn four um you know it just makes it so much easier to utilize the card in a in a positive way yeah so i really like the field mystics kane reinhardt also played this deck but he modified it a little bit so we he had, ended up winning the classic he right? did yeah uh, he defeated me in the <laughs> top eight and went on to win the whole thing. And he had a slightly different take on the deck. He did not... He put in the elemental package or like... Some, Small elemental some package. Some of the elemental package yeah. instead of incubation druids. And he didn't like Frilled Mystic as much. Mm -hmm. So he kind of cut those for the, the elemental two drop, Mana Dork and... Leafkin Druid. Yeah, Leafkin Druid and Risen Reefs. Yeah. Which I was kind of low on. I didn't, I didn't think they were very good. Risen Reef is just not nearly as good when you only have eight elementals in your deck. You know, so often it's just going to be a one one that it's draws just, you a card. Right, right, right. It's um, just Coiling Oracle. For three mana. And that it felt kind of medium to me. So I, I wasn't as much of a fan, but, you know, scoreboard. Yeah, right. <laughs> can't, can't disagree I was, too much. Yeah, I was defeated in the mirror and he won the event. So I just, you know. <laughs> well, I definitely watched you get turn three Nissa plus Ether Gusted out of out of game three so yeah, it wasn't great it wasn't wasn't the prettiest game <laughs> yeah had i been able to draw one more land in that game i think i would have been able to be in it but say la vie yeah no um, yeah you were sitting there with a plan even against that turn three nissa was, we were battling you totally had a yeah. bounce your nissa time wipe your lands plan yeah. prepared but yeah. Yeah. it didn't quite work out yeah so um, but yeah the band deck i i liked a lot and it had good matchups against both scapeshift and dinos Mm -hmm. So I think that in terms of like longevity, Scapeshift is just great. So I think that it's going to stick around. Dinos is really going to be easy to put a target on. So mm -hmm. kind of worried about that moving forward. But Bant is something that I think that we can tune towards whatever the new metagame turns out to be. And I think that it's got decent matchups against both of those other decks. So can we talk about specifically like why it has a good matchup against Scapeshift and then just in general, like how to beat 
the escape shift decks because that's something yeah. that I think is is pretty important to understand how to do. Well, so we we knew escape shift was going to be a thing when we were building our bant deck so we kind of did a lot of things to tune towards it mm-hmm. the counter spells are great so frilled mystic is just really good at making sure that you just don't get overrun mm-hmm. and uh we had some deputy detentions in the sideboard which is just really good at clearing out just like the mess of zombies that right. they can have <laughs> and you can even bounce it with teferi to do it yeah. again right you're you're able to put on pressure if you have a big voracious hydra that can you know put a really good clock on uh, another good mode for that card is just the seed rhino mode of just like four mana four or five yeah and you can just you know really start pressuring i mean it's it's a curve filler because it's like fine at four mana Mm -hmm. three mana if it's killing a land or elves it's fine but otherwise but then anywhere up from four like it is an expel and it just keeps getting yeah and it's just it's just good rate at everything from four mana on yeah so that's kind of cool so you're yeah you're able to put that clock on um and then you can also you have your hydrocrasis to attack in the air mm-hmm. and a lot of the time when the board gets clogged up because they make their seventh land drop and just start making a bunch of zombies right uh, but you're nissing so you have blockers yeah. and and one of the ways that the games play out a lot is that you like they're making a bunch of zombies and you have a niss out and you're making a three three every turn so the game isn't really progressing in any way and as long as you can like make sure that you have a counter spell for their escape shift mm-hmm. so they can't go way over the top eventually you're gonna ultimate your nissa and just really start eating into their board right um which is well really once nice. you once your three threes are indestructible then yeah they just get in the red zone yeah. yeah three threes are pretty bad at attacking into more two twos yeah you can't not. attack before that yeah. right it's because then they're just gonna trade for a two two and it's and that's really time. bad yeah but yeah okay um, as far as other decks go, like, obviously this is something that gets worked on in the future. Do we know what other just general weaknesses the Scapeshift decks as built have right now? Are they soft to mono red? Are they, you know, what's wh- yeah. what's going on with them? Uh, mono red is, and I think mono blue are kind of tough for those decks. The decks that can just kind of get under them and mm-hmm. don't really care as much about what they're trying to do. Yep. Like white weenie as well i think is a tough matchup mm-hmm. um so like those aggressive strategies that are trying to get under the scapeshift deck i think are going to be your best options uh also out of john dino's flame sweep is phenomenal because you just always have lethal in play and then mm-hmm. you know they have a bunch of tutus and you flame sweep and kill them yeah um <laughs> so that you know that card i think really does swing that matchup pretty well post board mm-hmm and deputy detention is kind of a similar just as an individual deal. card right if you can fit deputy de- deputy detention into your deck it, it helps mm-hmm. most decks match up there yeah um, although it on its own doesn't do much against the end of turn scape shift for lethal but yeah and the teferi plus scape shift plan is definitely something that gives scape shift an edge even when you're trying to do things that are going to be disruptive of it yeah um because if you're unable to answer their Teferi, there's just nothing you can do about that. So, yeah. kind of awkward. And given the way Teferi works, I would definitely be reluctant to rely on, you know, if my deck had, like, a not very good scapeshift matchup, but I could bring in Blood Sun or Alpine Moon or something yeah. to stop the things from happening, Give just given how Teferi works, I can't imagine that that's a particularly effective strategy. So... I'd, I'd definitely be really cautious about relying on that sort of thing. Right. Um, but it could be worth a shot. Those cards definitely have text against the deck. So especially if, if it's backed up by counter magic or at least pressure or something, then yeah. it, it could really be a thing. Any other stuff you want to talk about standard? Anything you learned over the weekend that you think is particularly important to share? 
I think we covered most of the bases. I mean, yeah. the field is a little more diverse than those three decks, mm -hmm. but I think oh, that absolutely. those, I think that those three decks have kind of solidified themselves above everything else. So it's kind of weird to have to say this, but I think that if you're like, if we're qualifying some things as tier one, it's hard to justify much anything else in tier one right now. Mm -hmm. And that could change. Um, you know, standard is the card pool is so large right now that it's going to be able to, you know, adapt to things. Yeah. So I think that, you know, it's not unreasonable that standard is going to shift once again after this weekend and stuff. So yeah, standard's great. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, I guess I'll probably be mostly playing standard. I might play an IQ this weekend. I'm not going to make it out to Columbus. Uh, yeah. And then probably will end up being the standard seat on my team for Richmond, which will be the next open nice. after Columbus. Okay. Probably is best for me to work on standard so I at least have an idea of what's going on from, from yeah. here on out. So definitely want to spend a fair amount of time talking about modern. Yeah. Because modern is very confusing right now. Yeah. It, I, I stayed away mostly from like the eternal format. So I let my teammates handle that for yeah. this one and focus a lot on standard. But every time I like peeked in a little bit at like, hey, you know, what are people talking about for, for modern and, and legacy? Everybody was like, everything's changed. <laughs> Nobody knows what's going on anymore. Like we're playing, you know, who knows what. So yeah. Legacy, yeah. especially snow control and legacy. Is that right? That's yeah. That was a thing. A big thing. I don't want to get too into legacy. Sure. Right now, but yeah. at some point we'll have the legacy convo. Right. Um, I played all modern this weekend. Yeah. So tell me about it. So I played Phoenix in the team open and it felt fine, mm -hmm. but you know, the way that we built the deck this weekend, I only had two Arias and one Finale of Promise as, like, power cards. Yeah. Uh, the rest of the deck was just removal and cantrips and, you know, the whole the Phoenix package. Yeah. I think that right now the deck is getting pulled in a couple of directions, and it's difficult. So I think a, a few things are happening right now. I, I think you're totally right that the mulligan rule means that every deck has gained and Phoenix has gained the least. Honestly, I think it might be in last place for what, what you gain from the London mulligan. Yeah. So that hurts. As far as new cards from Modern Horizons, I mean, getting Aria is absolutely a big deal. But what it mostly does is it, rather than ramping up the deck's raw power level, it allows you to dodge graveyard hate while performing a kind of similar role to Pyromancer's Ascension. And so I don't think it fundamentally changed what the deck is capable of doing outside of a couple of really specific matchups. I, I just have this feeling that between those things, just like the, the power level of the format as a whole kind of catching up to Phoenix... And also just, like, everybody knowing how to play against the deck now. Everybody has a plan. It doesn't... Playing the deck now does not feel like it did when I picked it up, you know, a week after Ross won the Open with it and just, like, <laughs> shocked people by 13-ing yeah. them or whatever. Right. Like, people know exactly how the deck works. It's the most known quantity possible. Yeah. And when you visualize yourself sitting down for a match of Modern, you kind of visualize your opponent opening on Spire Bluff Canal Serum Visions. So you lose a lot of equity there. And the deck is still powerful, but it's really difficult to build it to both be good against humans and have enough power in your deck to beat the powerful decks in the format. Yeah. And, you know, like, I I really wanted to get, like, a second Lava Dart in the deck, but I ended up running... My removal suite was the Bolts, one Lava Dart, 
a flame slash, a lightning axe, and what's it called? The delve one. <laughs> Can I not remember this? That's terrible. Uh, that's that's my job. Magmatic sinkhole. Sinkhole. So so my removal suite was like three big removal spells. Right. A lava dart and yep. my bolts. And that was for a few reasons. One, because I wanted to be able to kill some of the bigger creatures out of Jund, including Ren and Six, which is one of the reasons there's a magmatic sinkhole in the deck. Yep. And also because I really wanted to be able to kill Urzas if they came into play. Yeah. And just although I often want a lava dart, there just weren't enough matchups where it was the thing. And you're just really pulled in fundamentally different directions when you want to be a deck that beats humans and birds of paradise decks and that sort of thing. But then over here, you've got the decks doing the modern power level stuff. And for those decks, you really do want like, I want a cup. I want like three Arias in my deck. Or I want two finales of promise, but it's so hard to afford those things. And I'm just not totally sure how to construct the deck anymore. And the deck felt fine, but it did not feel like I was cheating. Yeah. Uh, you know, right. I am not sure that it's where I want to be going forward. What happened on Sunday, <laughs> I was just going to play the deck again in the classic, but right before it started, I was sitting with Lee and I, he had played his version of Urza yep. in the, in the open on your team. Mm-hmm. You guys just barely didn't make it. Yep. And so I asked him if I should just play Urza and his eyes lit up. And he said he'd pay half of my entry fee, which I did not allow him to do. But the fact that he was that excited for me to try to play Urza yeah, yeah, yeah. meant that I had to give it a shot. I was When I heard that this had happened, and I think I heard from Lee, I was also very excited. I ended up going 7-1. and one. Beautiful. Because I lost my first round, I had to play round 9 of the Modern Classic, which of course I didn't win. There's yeah. no way I would win that match. Right. But I also lost to the eventual winner of the tournament, so at least... Nice! <laughs> at least lost to, the, lost to first place. Yeah. I played pretty atrociously, especially... And, you know, my I lost the first round, which ruined my breakers, so I couldn't top 8. Mm-hmm. But I lost the first round entirely because of my fault. There was a spot where I had a Thopter Foundry in my hand against uh, Is It Phoenix, and I kind of wanted to get close to the combo, so I just played it out, and then he just immediately abraded it and surgical it. But I had the second Thopter Foundry, so it was like uh-huh. super painful that I lost that to the surgical. Yeah. But what that would have allowed me to do is just wait until turn four, play them both out, so I could not get surgical Okay. And that would protect my combo. And as long as you keep yourself from getting Ariad, the combo beats Phoenix. Yeah. So I didn't do a good job of protecting myself from that deck. That was one of many, many, many misplays on the day. Uh, and I <laughs> say this, hard. The and deck, you picked it up completely in the dark. So. Y- and it's not just hard. It, yeah. Like literally everything but the lands in the deck are just cards that I've never played with before. Sure. And the lands also gave me trouble because <laughs> you're when you're cantripping with your artifacts, you're supposed to leave your basics open so you can cast Astrolabe. But yeah. my Magic the Gathering muscle memory had me keeping dual lands open, which yeah. can't cast Astrolabes. <laughs> So, yeah. you know, definitely did that punt. So, yeah, I didn't play the deck very well. I got better as the day went on, and there was definitely some stuff that I was doing pretty well, like aiming for the combo and stuff like that. I had one, you know, solid set of gold fishes against Valica, or I thought that I sequenced well and stuff, and then that gave me enough confidence. I, I told Lee, 
after Valakut, I'm going to play against a slightly harder deck, and then I'm going to have to try my luck against Blue-White, and that's exactly what happened. I played against a slightly harder deck, and then I played against Blue-White Control and really had to, like, stretch out my muscles a little bit there. <laughs> yeah. But you are favored enough against Blue-White Control, that's it's right. just tricky. Right, right. So the that's all to say that the deck made up for my not-great play. Yeah, the uh, deck is crazy strong. Extremely powerful. Yeah. It has a combo in it, but it's not necessarily a dedicated combo deck. Mm -hmm. The way that Lee built it was with no goblin engineers. Yeah. And so what this allows you to do is... So one of the problems with goblin engineer in general is it dumps the sword into your graveyard, leaving it there to be surgically extracted when there's really no reason to just set yourself up for that if in the matchups where they have surgical so and also people bring in surgical against you when they shouldn't post board because if they're not experienced against the deck they think that it can disrupt sword combo sure. when all it does is make you leave a land up if you believe they might have surgical right so the goblin engineer introduces some weaknesses to the deck and introduces some play patterns that you actually don't really want to take all the time you know the turn two goblin engineer to put a sword in your graveyard isn't right as often as it kind of needs to be to make that card like A++. Sure. I think the card is still very strong, but it's not it, it's not a lock for the deck. Yeah. And so what it's Lee... Like, it's like a, a, a cute addition, I feel mm -hmm. like, but it's not necessary by any means. Right. And at some point, you just have too many non-artifact spells. Mm -hmm. You have to run four Urzas. Yeah. Like, this is non-negotiable. Right. Uh, card's crazy. It's it's just wildly powerful. Yeah. Uh, you have to run a couple of words. I think hopefully no more than two. It's it's pretty clunky. And then at some point you're just like, these hands just have all these colored spells in them and I, I can't really do that much. Um, so what Lee did and what I thought was quite good was cut the Goblin Engineers and run Icker Wellsprings instead. And so those are just, you know, a little more cantripping to help you get through your deck. They are a little expensive, but you can sacrifice them to Thopter Foundry when you haven't made the combo for quite a bit of value and extra Thopters. And you also, at that point, have a very high density of colorless spells and artifacts. And so that lets you run a completely insane card advantage engine in Mystic Forge. And... Yeah. That's the card that allows the deck to just kind of operate as what Lee has been calling Artifact Jund. Artifact Jund. Yeah, Mystic Forge is the card that not everybody else had in their Ursa decks, mm -hmm. but I, I think I was the most impressed with this card. Every time Lee had it out, he was just... It was just Experimental Frenzy, yep. but better. But better. Because not only do you have, like, you know, cards in your deck that are going to draw cards, so you can kind of, like, draw past some of the lands that you might have that mm -hmm. would like prevent you from going further. But also it on its own can just get you another draw by like exiling a land or whatever to keep going. Yeah. Oh yeah. You know, and in, you know, in conjunction with Urza, you just have so much mana to work with. You just It's unreal. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. So the Forge, so when I played against decks like I played against Snow Control in Modern, I played against Mardu Pyromancer, I played against Blue White. And for at least one of my games in each of those matches, uh my entire goal was trade resources so that I can get out this Mystic Forge. Yeah. Like, run them out of stuff, were for Mystic Forge, it'll get me the game. Sure. And it did, each yeah. time. Nice. So the card is really impressive. So we just probably need to spend a minute or so just talking about Urza and how unreal this card is. Yeah. If you, you, <laughs> you were talking to me a lot about how 
Urza is just like negative mana. Yeah. <laughs> you, you cast Urza and then uh, you have seven mana now. I had <laughs> one, <laughs> turn, one turn against Ad Nauseam where, and I, I didn't make this play because I was too locked in on, I need to set up lethal next turn against my opponent. So I'm going to play this Tezzeret that I sideboarded in, yeah. make a 5-5, five, five, hit him with a 5-5 five, five in the Thopter. Next turn, I will be threatening lethal, force him to use resources to not die. What I actually was supposed to do was play Urza, use my artifact mana to play Tezzeret. <laughs> Holy crap, this is yeah. turn four. We just did everything. Yeah, play Urza, play Tezzeret, plus Tezzeret, not even make the 5-5. Five five. I don't have to make the 5-5 five five to set up lethal on my next turn because I get Urza's Construct. Yeah. So Construct plus 5-5 five five plus a Thopter sets up lethal for the next turn. So I can afford to plus the Tezzeret, and then if I hit my last piece of my combo then i can just combo my opponent to death that turn <laughs> hilarious so and this is all just because urza is mana accelerant combo piece and threat like i was all of those things were relevant to what that play should have been yeah. like he keeps because of the size of the construct he keeps me threatening lethal on my next turn because of the mana he allows me to still play tezzeret and because he's part of the combo that means i just need to find one more thing and then i go infinite from there and then in games where things are not going well for you and you just have like some, you know, some random cantropy artifacts in play or whatever, it's very easy. He's your last piece of action. It's very easy to just activate him twice a turn until you win the game. Right. Yeah. I mean, and just like you said, it represents so much. It's it's mana, mm -hmm. a mana sink and, you know, a combo element. It's mm -hmm. just like, and power on the Two board. Two blockers. <laughs> it's like, just like, right uh it just adds it you know it fills all of the things so you know if you have nothing but just like a you know reasonable artifact count mm -hmm. and land count and you draw this card it just it's like now you have all of your deck unlocked essentially yep. all of the pieces that you might want and so, even when you reveal urza to urza right you shrug your shoulders and cast it because you get a giant construct yeah, all right sure yeah it's fine another another big monster yeah <laughs> And, like, you know, this happened with Lee, and I'm sure it happened with you. You just, like, cast Urza against your, like, opponent's creature deck, and then they can't attack anymore because yep. your creature's bigger than yep. theirs. <laughs> yeah. It's so, yeah, that construct is just gigantic. Yeah. Um, and, of course, this is an artifact deck, so you get to play Mox Opal, yeah. the most powerful card in modern. Right. Like, I believe. And the best hands, as always, as with KCI, as not not quite with affinity but the best hands were all the hands that didn't really have anything it was just like mox opal like astrolab misha's bauble mindstone some other artifact in two lands or something like that and you look at it and you're like this hand is it doesn't do anything but it's completely busted yeah. and then sure enough on turn three your opponent's just like i, I can't win this game <laughs> so very neat there's a lot of iterating to do on the deck still but urza is for real astrolab is a huge part of this deck in particular yeah and yeah lots of interesting interesting stuff going on and that's just one of the slices of modern right now right it feels like you know people are still testing a whole bunch of different stuff as well mm -hmm. so i think that like the big things for me that i saw at the weekend was you know urza was definitely the big one mm -hmm. uh, i know uh i saw austin collins playing hogak so you know people are still trying that out um, right, and I think you know, like Ross just wrote an article about it yeah. on on Star City, so I think people will start paying a lot of attention to that. Right, um, definitely one of the graveyard decks of choice. Mm -hmm. yeah. Still, Saturn Wayfinder is kind of the new uh, addition okay. to to the deck that that makes it a little more consistent. Yeah. 
people are still, I think, trying to figure out, you know, whether Dredge or Hogak is, mm-hmm. like, where you want to end up. And, you know, I think it's, like, close now between the two of those. But, you know, a lot of people I respect have told me that Hogak is great, you know, but, you know, and I, I think that, I, I think I would lean a little more towards the Dredge shells, but... Yeah. One uh, of the things that Hogak yeah. has going for it, too, is that it is much better against Graveyard Hate because sometimes you just cast Hogak from your hand and yeah. that's way more powerful than right. the things that Dredge can present against Graveyard right. Hate. They have to have, like, a, a real Graveyard Hate card mm-hmm. instead of just, like, a, a cage or, yeah. like, yeah. a one-shot exactly. spell. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah, right. You can't cast Hogak through Rest in Peace most of the time, but against anything else, even like <laughs> getting Rap Trapped or something, you only need a couple more cards in your graveyard again, and then you can cast your Hogak yeah. from your hand. Hogak is always surprisingly easier to cast than you think it is. So. Yeah. <laughs> Including the new technology of Dryad Arbor, so that one of your lands even can cast this spell. Right. Yeah. Yeah. People are trying that out for sure. So graveyard strategies, what else have we seen in modern that's been picking up? Well, artifact strategies, graveyard strategies. Yeah, okay, so that's modern. Right, <laughs> yeah. Well, big mana, although that has been less popular lately. There was a little bit of Tron. I did see Eldrazi Tron. Definitely seems to be the most common of the big mana-ish decks. Yeah. Um, and we know my feelings about this deck. I believe I have, in the smallest font, <laughs> am I wrong about Eldrazi Tron? Yeah, Eldrazi Tron... I know Ben Nicklich's team was on Eldrazi Tron. Uh, I think Sean Park was the pilot, and mm-hmm. he uh, they said that they really liked it, and they had a lot of good testing with the deck and also felt like the deck performed really well. Mostly a product of the London Mulligan just was able to... Just you just chalice out. more. Yeah, you just, you just chalice more, and that deck is best when you have like a broken opener. And, you know, that broken opener could just be like turn to Chalice, but sometimes you're like really digging for an early Thought Not Seer, mm-hmm. stuff like that. The deck plays Karn now. Yeah. Which is... Definitely a haymaker against the artifact decks, if nothing else. True. So definitely, well, you know, I, I was impressed with that. People are trying out a little bit of affinity. Mm-hmm. Zan was mentioning that he he wanted to test out some affinity shells with uh, the new... With the Forge. With the new... Oh, the first list that he played was a cranial deck that plays the new goblin oh, because okay, the goblin gotcha, can gotcha. actually act as stoneforge mystic kind uh, of yeah a, a little bit of a stoneforge mystic uh-huh. it's just as fast as playing the card on its own mm-hmm. so that's nice and then yeah and then we, just right before we came up for the podcast we were watching evan pilot this more combo-y version of affinity that was really leaning on the new yeah on mystic forge mystic yeah. forge yeah to just chain all the way through its deck yeah. with ethereum sculptor even so that yeah and and, and some like stars and and spheres to clear lands and right yeah it, it definitely looked very cool probably is mystic a long forge ways is, off but yeah yeah i agree that the deck needs a lot of work but mystic forge is one of those cards that i think will end up being a mainstay of a highly played tier one deck mm-hmm. eventually i think that people eventually will figure out that that is um you know where you want to be i don't know if the shell is just urza or if it's something else right. more like combo-oriented. Well, uh, the thing is, like, the cost to play it is mostly... Like, the co- it, it is expensive. It's a four-mana artifact that doesn't do anything on the board. Right. So your deck has to be able to afford to do that. Yeah. But the deck-building restriction for it of play a lot of artifacts is, like, one that you're delighted to meet anyways because of the existence of Mox Opal. Yeah. So that, it, like, starts you down a good path by its requirements and then you just kind of have to figure out what to do with it from there right so right there's definitely room so yeah definitely a lot of 
things that we'll need to figure out about that mm -hmm. moving forward. Oh, and and I do also just want to mention briefly that there's really like two big non-affinity artifact decks to think about when you're thinking about artifact decks that might show up. Um, so there are the Urza decks that have mm -hmm. Thopter Sword combo in them, and then there are the more dedicated Prison decks. Yes. And these play out really fundamentally differently. Mm -hmm. they're, they're not the same deck at all. The Prison decks actually can put you into an inescapable bind between like snare, ensnaring bridges and other hate cards and welding jars and spell skites. Uh, a braid often doesn't get you out of that trap unless you get it as it's just beginning to close and deal lethal damage through it. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I played against Will Pulliam on yep. day one of the open. He was playing the most prisony of the prison decks possible with four chalices, yep. spirit guides, and four narsets yeah so and, and i think he had like puzzle box combo and also guy reach sanitarium for narset lock value so i don't know how insane that deck actually is but yeah. it certainly wasn't beatable game one with phoenix <laughs> yeah yeah he played yeah essentially the like the prison shell and i know that he had some urzas in the sideboard mm -hmm. sideboard into and he was talking to me about how yeah he does that when that is good but then he was like, and it's pretty much mostly good against the format, so yeah. it comes in a lot of the time. Definitely. Yeah, the format hasn't adjusted to Urza yet. Right. It, it yeah. just, people aren't playing quite the right removal spells. People. That's always huge. Whenever a new, really, really good card comes out is that people just like haven't adjusted their answers quite yet. Yep. And I definitely tried to, but I still didn't feel great against Urza decks, especially yeah. not the, the prison deck. I, yeah, yeah, yeah. Felt pretty good because my board plan of like leaving in my big removal spells paid off. Game two will cast like a sigh and a spell skite, and I was able to just kill both of those so that I was able to abrade his bridge and and kill him with one phoenix over the course of many turns with the blood moon in play. So I knew that my plan like could work, but then I just got trounced game three. So fine, yeah, you got me. Yeah, Urza in general though is a threat that the format isn't prepared to deal with and. That in combination with having Thopter and Sword in your deck. Um, you know, I played against Mardu Pyromancer. This is a really cool thing that I saw this weekend. A Mardu Pyromancer deck running New Chandra, Little okay. Chandra from oh, M20, yeah, yeah. and Yogmoth. And so between all of the token um, generation sure. and Chandra, yeah. my opponent pretty much just had Necro in play. <laughs> crazy and if i were playing like a creature based deck my creatures would all have been dead right and my opponent would have seven cards in hand and i'd have two yeah, yeah. and i just would never have been able to outgrind that i was stopped her sorting so i was able to keep up just fine <laughs> you know if i were Hilarious. grinding in any other way yeah, yeah it yeah, wouldn't yeah. have worked right yeah that is interesting i think that so you know people are playing a lot of jund right now that's another popular deck in modern mm -hmm. uh you know ren and six is making its impact well known yeah um it's it's a 90 dollar card for a reason yeah yeah for sure and uh, i think one of the interesting answers to that might be mardu pyromancer mm. mardu has always been pretty good at beating up on the other mid-range decks for various reasons uh and i have to imagine level. it's even better now yeah. yeah agreed so that's you know that's definitely a consideration and i can totally see you know mardu being a good choice moving forward. Oh, you know, I'm sure it still smashes humans even yeah. more so with Yogmoth. Oh man, good good Jun <laughs> matchup because right. of all that same stuff. Yeah, definitely didn't feel like there was a lot I had to be scared of as an Urza deck playing against. I, you know, I dropped a game 
where he would turn two young pyromancer, turn three young pyromancer spell, turn four spell, 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 and yeah, I just yeah. had kind of a clunkier and, and died to it. But once we got into any sort of grinding, he was doing very impressive stuff, though. The things that I saw were enough to grind with pretty much anything else in the format. Sure. Uh, including, like, a Phoenix deck getting Phoenixes back every turn. He wouldn't even needed. He wouldn't even have needed to exile the Phoenixes to keep up with them. He could have blocked them with Souls Tokens and killed them every turn with Yawgmoth, and then finally just had a critical mass to just deal lethal damage. So, really impressive stuff out of that deck. Wow. Jund is much better now. It's It feels like it might be a real deck again. Yeah. It, I mean, you know, it's certainly getting the tools. People are moving away from Dark Confidant. Which and, has been bad for a while. Yeah, which has been bad It's for been a, a liability for, yeah. for a long now time. Now it's even more of a liability. <laughs> Dark Confidant get pinged by Ren and Six. I think you just can't have any bobs in you. I know a lot of these yeah. just have like two. I don't know if you are supposed to have any. I don't know. But yeah, definitely people are trying that out. Oh, another deck that I want to mention had some pretty good results. Made both first and second at the Classic mm-hmm. is Modern Red Phoenix. Yeah, honestly, this does, as loath as I am to admit it, but with the upgrades from Modern Horizons, yeah. it feels like this may be the Phoenix deck that you're supposed to be playing. Yeah, I think that if you are going to be playing Phoenix, then it's probably Mono Red that you want. I'm still not completely sold on that deck. Like, I know it put up good results, mm-hmm. but I don't know. My experience with it has been really kind of derpy, where the openers are typically always phenomenal, but mm-hmm. you just run out of gas a little too close to the finish line. Yeah from my experience so, yeah and i don't know what's the right number of bedlam revelers to s- try to mm-hmm. balance that out a little bit yeah i mean that could certainly be one of the answers to the you know the gas problem most of the lists that i've seen have no more than two and i believe right. that's because a lot of your spells have flashback it's it's hard they don't really cantrip so you don't end up with six spells in your graveyard right. so it's like a, a four mana spell a lot of the time and right you know you're discarding lands to faithless looting so i i I think it's hard to run more than like two or so, and I don't know how else you possibly gas up in that deck. So I don't know either. But you know, put up good results, so definitely something yeah. to keep an eye on. Uh, Burn also did reasonably well in the classic, from what I saw. Uh, Whetstone recently won a classic mm-hmm. with it, and I think that it, you know it gained a lot from now it gets to have the cycle land and right. um, you know I think the London Mulligan rule is something that yeah. is reasonably good for burn burn never wants to mulligan so it's not that great it is you're a critical be... mass deck yeah but you can be down one card and as long as you're not also up an extra land right, right then right. you can still have enough burn spells to kill your opponent yeah. and the london mulligan plus sunbay canyon really mean that going to six is not nearly as much as of a death sentence as it was right. before you have more control over it so yeah. now if you draw your you know if your six is like has four lands in it you can just put one back and be like fine yeah close to fine <laughs> Yeah, you know, still you still got, one. Yeah, don't draw another one. Hopefully, <laughs> yeah. one and but yeah, like you do have Sunbay Canyons in the deck, yeah. so you right. can convert them back. Right, right, right. And yeah, no, no, burn definitely seems fine. I'm not totally sold on the numbers of skewer the critics and light up the stage people have been casting against me because mm-hmm. I've definitely had games where I just fatal pushed my opponent's one drop and then. The, like, Burn is a deck where if your one-drop dies, you're like, ugh, I'm not sure I can kill my opponent. But if your spells, instead of being standalone burn spells, include a bunch of light up the stages and skewer, like, then you're really not sure that you can get it done. It can be rough. It can be rough. Yeah. I think people have mostly moved away from light up the stage and mm-hmm. burn. It's just, like, some number of skewers that they're running now. But I think that's, like, probably where you want to be. You can turn you them know. on with a burn spell, and yeah. it's much less awkward than turning on light up the stage with a burn spell. Yeah. 
Yeah, I don't know which of between those two, I don't know which one is really the choice for any given weekend. I think burn is like the less powerful but more consistent option mm-hmm. of the two of them. So it just kind of depends on where you want to be there. And I mean, you know, in modern, like I kind of want to be taking the the chances, right? Like I want burn doesn't have turn three kills, right? Modern Red Phoenix has a lot of turn. Th- I got. Turn three through a blocker by Mono Red Phoenix on, yeah. on Sunday, yeah. and it just like wasn't like it was gonna. Ha- I knew it was gonna happen. Just, just gonna get got. Yeah, yep. Uh, and it just it did happen. They had two prowess guys in play. <laughs> I couldn't yeah. beat that. Yeah, the multiple prowess guy hands are great. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Having multiple prowess guys out and then casting a finale of promises, <sighs> or even nice. just like bolt lava dart flashback dart, and then your guys are gigantic. Yeah, yeah. It's pretty good. So the deck is powerful, but yeah, it definitely suffers from those consistency problems. You've only got eight of those prowess guys. Some people are running nine. They have like that one of one one guy that untaps himself. Oh yeah, the guy that dies to lava dart. <laughs> yeah. The guys those those creatures being one twos is really obnoxious. Yes. Yeah. Agreed. Definitely saw that in the in the classic, the finals was Monored Phoenix versus Monored Phoenix. Mm-hmm. And the player with Runaway Steamkin lost to the player without Runaway Steamkin. <laughs> Which makes a lot of sense in the Lava Dart Mirror. (laughs) Any more thoughts on Modern? Any other decks that we missed? I think we talked about most of the ones that I'm excited about. I think so. Oh, it should just, since we mentioned Hogak, Canister did win the Modern Challenge with Hogak. So that's probably going to be influencing people to start picking it up and also just shows that it's really powerful. I think he went 12-0 with it, so... I did see his... 8-0, maybe 9-0 posting mm. um, on Goldfish. I didn't go as far to see who won, but yeah, that makes yep. a lot of sense. He 9-0'd and then just swept the top eight, and I, mean, I, I believe that his was a sadder Wayfinder okay. list, so sure. has a, a a pretty reasonable amount of consistency to it, and I think just puts Hogak into play on turn two or three a lot. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, Sader Wayfinder, I mean, you know, Stitch's Supplier was often like the best thing that you could be doing on mm-hmm. turn one. And I can totally see how Seder Wayfinder is like the slightly worse two mana version of that card, right? Where it's you know it's still doing doing the work that you want it to. Just if your if your graveyard isn't getting hated out, the more cards you can put in your graveyard, the more then you have access to more blood gas. You can the more blood gas you have, the bigger your carrion feeders are. The easier it is to put Hogak into play. Just yeah, yeah, it's totally fine playing a worse Stitcher suppliers <laughs> five through eight to be able to do that more. Yeah, totally and it's see. green. Sorry, colors. Sorry, colors. Um, well, so going forward, what are you? Do we have any idea? Are we on a certain place on the modern wheel, or are you just trying to figure out something powerful to do for this weekend? Um, I think I'm mainly just trying to figure out something powerful to do for this weekend. Mm-hmm. I think my top three are going to be some graveyard deck, or Urza, okay, or maybe Eldrazi Tron. <laughs> <laughs> I I think I'm I might want to try it out. Just, you know, just to see if it's got wheels. Um, I can see it. Every time they don't have an, they don't have a chalice out early against me, I just feel like I'm playing against a standard deck with my modern deck. Sure. And <laughs> yeah. I couldn't be happier. Yeah, no, that, I mean, I get it for sure. But yeah, I think that, I think that those are, and, and I might even lump in just like regular Tron with that, where if, you know, if we are on a certain place in this wheel, I think that what might be secretly like the best positioned are these big mana decks. Yeah. You know, I think that Tron might just be really well positioned right now against a lot of stuff. It's traditionally very good against graveyard decks. Yeah. Um, as long as you're running your relics and right. staying, trying to keep them honest. 
very good against... If you want to beat Eldrazi Tron, Tron is one of the best ways to do that. So if other people are thinking Eldrazi Tron, then this is a way to go. Yeah. I can and, definitely see it. Yeah, I mean, Eldrazi Tron is putting up a decent amount of numbers, so people are out there playing it. Yeah, for sure. I don't think you can ever beat Mono Red Phoenix with Tron. <laughs> yeah. So that could be cause for concern. Right. Yeah. Oh, and I, I mean, yeah, Mono Red Phoenix and Burn I, are both decks that I really enjoy playing. Mm-hmm. So... You know, I'll probably end up firing up at least a league with them at some point this week. Yeah. Just to see. We did. Was it? I don't remember what weekend it was. One of these weekends, we did leave the tournament hall, go back to the hotel room, and play a league of Monterey Phoenix. We did. Yeah. And it did the most impressive 0-3 we've <laughs> ever seen. Yeah. Right. We 0-3 the league, but every game we were like, this deck is broken, and then we lost. Yeah. <laughs> so that's... But that included, like... Having turn three lethal, but then dying turn three to Hogak. Right. Like, <laughs> yeah. You know. Yeah. yeah but of... this was back in the in the bridge days right. too. So. Right. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, deck is certainly very has a lot of raw power and just insane speed to it. Yeah. But and I mean, it's got to be helped pretty massively by the London Mulligan. You're just that much more likely to have a, a prowess guy in your hand. Yeah. And the difference. Between having one and not having one is night and day with that deck. So, yeah. agreed. Um, should we do a Patreon question of the week? Let's do it. Let's see what we've got. All right. So, for our Patreon question of the week, by Jiminy asks, Yesterday Grims, another patron of ours, yep. was mentioning that Titan Shift might have game against the current meta. I'm wondering how much bandwidth a team like Lotus Box has to revisit older tier 1.5 decks like Mardu, Infect, Titan Shift to see if they have new life. So I just think that's kind of an interesting question to give people a little insight into how teams like Lotus Box operate. By the way, welcome to Corey Baumeister yeah. and Edgar Magalhage yep. to the team. Recent additions. Brand new additions. Both top eight at this open. Yep. Baumeister won. <laughs> you know, just welcome to the SCG tour. Yeah. It's a, it's a good time. Yeah. yeah. I'm very excited to be working with those guys. Yeah. Uh, a lot of respect for both of them. So um, Cool. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Pretty big deal. Pretty mm-hmm. awesome. But yeah, so uh, how much do we revisit old archetypes? I think the answer is more, like, player-specific. Mm-hmm. I think that a lot of... Like, some of the players on our team are pretty biased against any old decks that they have deemed to be lower tier. But, you know, some of us love to, like, crack open some old archetypes. So me personally, I'm always down to revisit some old stuff. And I'll always, like, try out this, like and you know i'm like really fast to like be willing to fire up ad nauseum mm-hmm. or infect or titan shift just kind of any of those i'm like hey maybe like theory wise i think this might be well positioned right now let's try it out mm-hmm. um and i'll fire it off yeah no there's a um, lot of days when i come in i'm like how's it going and you're like i just played a league with ad nauseum elves <laughs> Elf, i just played an elves league and i'm like yeah. and, I, and i'll be like that didn't go very well, did it? And you'll be like, no, <laughs> but I'll be glad yeah. that you did it yeah, for sure. sure. Right. It's worth giving a shot, you know, um, just, uh, you know, and sometimes it doesn't even matter what record you end up with. You can just like have the feel of the decks like, oh, did this like feel like I was able to keep up with the decks I was playing against? Yeah. Nah, I didn't. Or maybe. Yeah, sure. I did. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, I'm definitely willing to do that. And then also part of the team dynamic is that everybody has deck preferences, mm-hmm. like people who have had success in the past with a deck right it's really hard to get over that love for the deck so you know zan loves infect and boggles and he's always willing to be like hmm, i wonder if infect and boggles are good right now and then he'll like put in some work with it mm-hmm. if it works out he'll tell the rest of us yo we need to put more consideration into this 
If it doesn't, then, you know, okay, he spent some time on that and we can move on. Right. And, and um, this stuff, you know, like you said, usually does seem to come at an individual mm-hmm. level. It's not like Xan is assigning out, like, okay, I need somebody to check Valakut and sure. see if that's magically good now. I yeah, need yeah, somebody yeah. to work on Eldrazi Tron. People will think... I'd like to try this deck. We'll run a league with it. And, you know, like if you have a successful league, if you feel like the deck is keeping up, then you might run a couple more and then we'll start birding you and see like, okay, this thing does still have legs. This is coming back. Right. For sure. So, yeah. So I think that and a large part of the benefit that we get from the team is definitely comes from all of the different perspectives that we all have. Mm -hmm. And because we have such a, a wide variety of perspectives and, you know, and we all have our biases and quirks and all that stuff. But I think that mostly we're able to combine all of that into something positive and functional. And, you know, the the, the sum of all of our perspectives is greater than any one of ours. So, yeah. Um, yeah. Cool. It works out. Yeah. I guess I don't really have anything to add to that. That's There you go. I, yeah, I think I answered the question. So. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, and with new members now, hopefully even more, even new perspectives. more perspectives and yeah. you know, it's going to be great. Definitely. Definitely like really exciting stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, just so that we're not totally ignoring this. Dylan pointed this out while we were driving home. Daniel Fournier won some large event, some large modern event with a pretty new take on blue-white control. Oh, yeah. That is... Dylan was really, really into it, and I took a look at it, and I thought that it did look kind of nice. It's just, like, lower to the ground, cleaner, Just not clunking up with cryptic commands. It's an acknowledgement that you get your card advantage with Planeswalkers, not... It doesn't have to be with Snapcaster Mages and Cryptic Commands. We have the Planeswalkers in the deck. The rest of the deck has to be as lean as possible to support the Planeswalkers. Yeah. So it's cheap removal spells, cheap counter magic, wraths, cantrips, and just a very clean deck. You know, Shaheen won the team open with, with Corey playing, a, you know, old more traditional blue-white control with lots of snaps and Cryptic Commands. I would definitely advise, if you're a blue-white person check out Fournier's list going forward and yeah. and see if that works for you because yeah. it, it seems much closer to a modern deck than traditional blue eye control. Makes sense to me. I may splice that back into the modern section, uh, but yeah. I wanted to acknowledge it. <laughs> sure. Cool. Well, thanks so much to By Jiminy for that question. Thanks everybody so much for listening, uh, both our live audience and of course anybody listening to the podcast anywhere in the world. We really, really do appreciate all of you so much. If you want to find us online, you can find us on our website, mtggrindcast.com. We've got links to the Patreon there. You can also go straight to patreon.com slash mtggrindcast. We've also got links on our site to Collins's coaching services where they can find you. If you would like to become a patron, we've got all the information about our tiers and our sort of new rewards, including the one-on-one time which this week i will be starting to contact people and making sure that we are getting that done for everybody um and i will also be sending out the pins and everything else this week and i rocked one of those pins on my play mat this week it was a lot of fun so highly recommend they're sweet they're really sweet i'm i'm really happy with how they turned out Yeah. yeah If you want to find us on social media, you can find the podcast at at MTG underscore Grindcast on Twitter. I'm tweeting from at CCR underscore Grindcast. Collins is also on Twitter. At Collins Mullen. And yeah, that's it. Thanks so much for listening and have a great week. Peace.
to splice this into. I, I do okay. want to answer Lee's question. All right, uh, sure. Chris, how did it feel to play a deck that... So, so Lee also asks in chat, how did it feel to play a deck that was impossibly difficult with cards you've never played before? It felt, honestly, it was really difficult playing with these cards. Um, I made mistakes both with the cards and then just like very basic sequencing mistakes because a lot of my mental energy was taken up mm -hmm. with cards that I didn't really know how they do. And also I'm not a huge combo deck player either. Yeah. So the style of the deck, both in being a combo deck and in being an artifact deck, and then the way that it tends to grind its games out, a lot of these things were taking up huge portions of my mental energy that, you know, when I'm playing Phoenix, I assign a lot of my like understanding of my opponent's threats and what they mean to me and stuff to heuristics and to things that I've picked up over time. I know how I deal with things out of Phoenix. I know what I ignore. I don't know that with an artifact deck. Right. So I have to be yeah. thinking about every card my opponent plays in addition to every card that I play. You have to actively parse those decisions every time. Right. And that's tough. I've never yeah. made them before. Right, right. Um, and it resulted in a lot of very embarrassing plays. <laughs> yeah, well, it's okay. And I know I'm also a person who needs to practice with a deck even if it's pretty similar. Like, if I change five cards in the Phoenix deck, I probably need to run it in a league before I'm really comfortable with it. Sure, right. um, I need to practice with decks before I'm any good with them. Yeah. And fortunately, or unfortunately, I did have Lee watching all of my matches. Oh, good. Um, and, I mean, it definitely made me... I was feeling a little bit self-conscious because I would definitely catch myself right after I made a play and it was too late. And then Lee also... This very helpfully caught stuff that I didn't realize and then was able to apply in, in future matches. So right. I did feel like I improved massively over the course of the tournament. So that was I would helpful. love to have Lee over my shoulder and just with whatever deck I'm playing. Yeah, you know? <laughs> it was it was it was really helpful. Yeah. One of the things that I am I was happiest about once we got to the portion between games where I was sideboarding, I since I've watched Lee sideboard with artifact decks and I've asked him for his logic and stuff before. I actually feel like I did a pretty good job of sideboarding most of the time. Nice. My my outs and ins were really... I, I was pretty happy with how it went. Some of them were not exactly what Lee would have done, but sure. I, I at least didn't disrupt the core ability of my deck to function, and I think mostly mostly made good decisions there. So that felt good, but that was because I was able to focus in on one decision, whereas playing the games, there were just too many things going on. Yeah. So... Definitely a weird experience, but also just opens up some pretty glaring weaknesses in my game. And I'm going to be playing some Urza going forward just because I know that this isn't, these are skills that I need to have access to. Sure. So makes a lot of sense. Yep. All right. Now we're actually done. Okay. So <laughs> Lee, hopefully you stuck around for that. But uh, if not, then I guess you can catch it on the podcast later <laughs> if you want to listen to this twice. <laughs> nice. Again, thanks to everybody so much for listening. And. Have a great week. Peace again.